Welcome to the Visegrad Insight Podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. My name is Radu Albukomanescu. I'm from Romania. I work with the largest university in the country and involved in civil society initiatives from economic to diplomatic. Because of it, I do recommend Visegrad Insight. Our Central Europeans just came back or disconnected from Bucharest, where the, the so-called Bucharest 9 held its um, uh, annual meeting on, on the topics related to security within the NATO framework, meeting with Jens Stoltenberg, and uh, importantly being connected with also uh, President Biden. Uh, there, was, uh, there was also very recently meeting in Porto, there was a conference on the future of Europe, there was a vote on China in which Hungary did its usual gig and uh, there was the former Slovak Prime Minister um, announcing again on Facebook policies uh, because of which very recently this government, the very same government, uh, nearly uh, has uh, folded its card uh, earlier this uh, year. Today is 11th of May 2021. My name is Wojciech Przybylski, I'm editor-in-chief of Visegrad Insight, and next to me is... Quincy Klut, managing editor of Visegrad Insight. And we're going to talk about what's what was the most important uh, event of, of the uh, of the past weekend, uh, last week, and what's what, what to expect uh, this week, all uh, concise and packed, of course, and related also to our recent publications on, on visegradinside.eu. Uh, so let's begin. Quincy, uh, let me start by asking you, in your opinion, the most important event of the, of the recent days was? Maybe the Conference on the Future of Europe. Um, probably not the Porto Social Summit. I mean, even though it came um, with a lot of big declarations, uh, social policy, uh, healthcare, I think is, is still, these are sensitive fields where it's going to take a long time for the European Union really to have a sense of discretion. Um, the Conference uh, on the Future of Europe at least uh, offers some opportunity uh, for Central Europe to show um, it can also play a role when it comes to bigger questions of, of European integration. And I believe our guest in the second half uh, of, of this episode will also have something to say about that. But it could also very much be a divisive uh, factor uh, within politics, uh, but also within civil society. Um, what do you think? No, my take is that the conference on the future of Europe may divide Europe in, in as much it is a presidential um, uh, election platform for uh, Emmanuel Macron. It may serve uh, the right-wing governments in uh, Central Europe or across Central Europe, in Poland, in Hungary, in in Slovenia, um, for the very same purpose next year in Slovenia and Hungary. Who knows? Maybe also in Poland, there will be elections, and uh, which otherwise in Poland are scheduled for 2023, but. There are good reasons also to believe that they, they, they might happen earlier. And given such an opportunity, and also looking at some of the statements of the politicians um, who now seek their future in the, in the next phase of the European project, you may, uh, you may have a, a strong sus uh, su suspicion that they will not just lay quietly and wait for what uh, Guy Verhoistak and everyone else will be saying about the future of Europe. And they will be mobilizing their constituencies and their activists and uh, different uh, groups within the civil society 
to speak on behalf of the idea of, you know, Europe of nations, intergovernmentalism rather than federalism, all sorts of, of things that that we have been hearing uh, so far. So yes, I think the, the beginning of the Future of Europe conference is very important, but it might not be important uh, in the way that has been described already by Ursula von der Leyen in three languages when she was speaking on the, on the inaugural event or President Macron when he was instructing uh, journalists mm -hmm. to go to a shrink and, and so on. Well, I think uh, the adage that uh, Europe is forged in crises uh, maybe applies more than, than conferences. And uh, I think uh, still, if we look at European recovery funds and the discussion there, that is going to be much more significant. And um, yeah, maybe that is a story from a couple of, of days ago here in Poland. Uh, it was quite interesting also to see, as you highlight as well, maybe elections in Poland at some point in the future, but also ready to see dynamics here. So essentially, um, the ruling government peace managed to pass uh, the the sort of recovery plans um, to be submitted or submitted to the European Commission uh, with the help uh, of some of uh, the the left uh, left uh, parties in um, in the Polish Parliament without the support of of uh, one of its uh, own uh, governing coalition partners. Uh, so that is in itself quite significant and. Um, on the left, we've seen the, the, the comment or the rationale that, well, it, it is more important to pass this uh, major financial package uh, as a form of support. Um, and it's also a, a, a way to, to put a stop to sort of the enemies of, of Europe in the Polish same. At the same time, uh, since then, we've also seen a lot of division between the left, between liberals uh, in the opposition in response to this. And, um, you could also look at it from a different perspective, uh, that uh, maybe Kaczynski is the big winner uh, in this uh, after all. Yes. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. The the, I mean, Kaczynski can uh, now sleep better, or at least he may smile because he's got this schadenfreude smile each, each time uh, the opposition uh, just uh, uh, you know uh, uh, fails to to anything that it promises to, and this time the opposition failed to stay united on the on the question um, that was more symbolic perhaps uh, than than meaningful in terms of actually uh, changing the government. Uh, the The promise of the main coalition uh, civic coalition party was that with the recent vote that they lost, um, should the opposition st have st had stayed united, the, um, the government would have to uh, back down and even maybe fall, and there would be a technical government. That would be the new opening for the opposition. That was the song of those who withheld their, I mean, abstained in, in the voting. Uh, but the left indeed um, wanted to make its mark, and it did make its mark um, on the political scene, uh, showing that it's not going to cooperate with the um, with the other opposition parties uh, in that respect, it did vote along what is generally expected in society for the recovery fund or for the uh, for the budget uh, appropriations um, that are required. And in a way, uh, nothing has changed. In the public opinion polls, uh, the left so far um, doesn't seem to, to have any additional points. Um, PIS is slowly rebuilding its strength. 
Um, it went down to about 30% and below, but now it's building up. Uh, we'll see if the, if the trend continues, but definitely the recent vote was helpful. And uh, there are questions about the new leadership in um, potential new leadership in the civic platform. Uh, the main party of the coalition, civic coalition, and frankly, the that might be necessary to make a, to make a significant move towards some new direction and come up with ideas that will finally have uh, any um, uh, well may endanger PIS position. But um, that's uh, that's all for Poland, I would say. <laughs> you, you can yes, you can discuss it <laughs> exactly. You can discuss it. Indefinitely, apart from maybe the fact that uh, President Duda uh, has uh, had a, a phone conversation when he personally attended Bucharest's nine meeting, him only and the host, uh, President Johannes, were on the spot. The others connected uh, via video conference, President Biden as well. So Mr. Duda had to swallow the... Um, well, the address of President Biden underlying the the democratic values and norms and standards are underpinning the security uh, commitments uh, within NATO. Uh, something that Mr. Duda omitted in his press conference after the meeting, but but that was uh, later released clearly uh, uh, under underscored in mm -hmm. President Biden's communication. Do you think uh, Viktor Orban was closely listening to the Biden speech and uh, democratic values underpinning security? Yeah, yeah, he's the he's the Democrat in chief. I mean, he also gave an interview last week to a Slovak conservative uh, paper in which um, in, in which uh, he says that he's not anti-liberal, he's illiberal. That means he plays along in the same game for democracy with liberals. However, the problem is that some liberals are undemocratic. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> he plays he, he plays the devil advocate in a way. Uh, but mostly uh, this advocate is uh, somehow... Uh, lobbying for the interests of Chinese and Russians. And uh, Mr. Orban has been recently voting against the whole EU, against the all, uh, all decisions of the bloc on sanctions on China regarding um, uh, the influence and the pressure on Hong Kong. Uh, something that the bloc may still decide and find a way to, to bypass. But, but for now, there is a lot of criticism, again, on, on Hungary for <laughs> for for uh, choosing uh, um, uh, geopolitical autocrats over uh, st strategic democratic uh, direction, so I think uh, Mr. Biden Biden is not uh, going to uh, to make a phone call or or not to speak of a trip <laughs> to Budapest anytime soon, mm -hmm. if Mr. Orban even wanted that. Okay, so maybe one more story uh, for for this week. Um, uh, yeah, one we, we would like to share with you. Uh, Igor Matovic took to Facebook uh, once again, highlighting uh, his romance, uh, ongoing romance with Sputnik. Um, so uh, earlier this week, there, there was um, some um, information also being passed on through the, the Slovak Ministry of Health, uh, confirming that the Hungarian laboratory had uh, judged that uh, Sputnik vaccines uh, provided to, to Slovakia are reliable. So so Matovic in response immediately took to, to Facebook uh, to say that in the next uh, coming days we can expect uh, Slovak, um, Sputnik vaccines to be uh, uh, used in, in Slovakia. Um, the response to that post uh, on Facebook was about half uh, serious, half uh, 
uh, funny. Um, but it, it also continues to show that uh, Matovic, has, in his capacity as Minister of Finance within this government, uh, continues to be uh, an interesting, unexpected factor. Yes, uh, Wojciech, you seem to have... Uh, yeah, yeah. But he was also praised in the very same interview of, of uh, Mr. Orban. In, that was an interview um, for Slovaks uh, in, in which Mr. Matovic was um, not anymore as prime minister, but still praised as the Christian leader. And the, the, the two apparently have good chemistry when, um, when, when they uh, interact. And also, um, interestingly, regarding vaccine policy and, and again, uh, global strategy of the Central European countries, uh, you, would, you, you have seen in Hungary that Hungary has been just opening to the free movement of people from countries like um, uh, Turkey, uh, Serbia, I believe Montenegro as well, um, who, who were vaccinated by Sinopharm or Sputnik, and at the same time, Hungary is not opening for even for its V4, Visegrad 4 allies uh, who were vaccinated by Pfizer or AstraZeneca. And those travelers to Hungary need to have, um, you know, need to go under quarantine and, and they're, they're not having any um, priority treatment, you would say, in, 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 you know, in bypassing COVID restrictions. So, yeah, well, COVID, uh, COVID politics in Central Europe is, uh, is really interesting in, in the global lens. And then brings us also to, to the question of, um, uh, of Russia in the, in the global game uh, against democracy, uh, at least for the time being under the watch of Mr. Putin. Um, in Czechia and in Poland, there are interesting uh, developments that we have recently reported on visegradinside.eu. Yeah, so uh, for this week, uh, I encourage you to have a look at uh, Mirek Toda's article, which is uh, um, looking also at uh, the EU's uh, fairly feeble response and also the fact that very few countries in the end have decided to expel uh, Russian diplomats, aka spies. Um, Mirek makes an, an absolutely strong in comparison with the uh, Skripal case from a couple of years ago, and notes uh, how how yeah how lackluster in a way the response is, and uh, it's also showcased by by Borel's uh, statement from from earlier this week, uh, trying to to focus more on uh, reducing tensions than than really. Um, an escalation of this crisis. Um, and this is, uh, well, an, an excellent uh, article. Um, there's more, which we'll be happy to share as well uh, as part of, of this episode. And apart from that, I really encourage you also to have a look at our uh, recent reporting on Polish uh, civil society and a, a suggestion of a, a conservative uh, NGO called Ordu Juris to curtail um, uh, especially any any sorts of uh, foreign funding or support uh, for NGOs. And uh, yes, that is a story still uh, being developed. Yeah, except that they are not conservative at all. They're radical, uh, the, the, the ultra-traditionalist tra movement. They want to reverse uh, the course of history. Um, so they are, I would, maybe they're reactionary, maybe they're revolutionary, counter-revolutionary, but uh, they are definitely playing into the hands again of Mr. Putin, uh, 
lobbying for something Russia has recently um, implemented and is uh, speeding up on the implementation. And after that, Hungary has been implementing, which is the foreign agents law, uh, branding and taxing NGOs, civil society organizations for whatever money they would be receiving uh, from abroad. In Russia, that tool is being now used also against uh, Navalny activist supporter groups. Uh, Radio Free Europe uh, is uh, summoned to, to pay additional fees for which Radio Free Europe may uh, may withdraw from Russia because there is no budget for paying Russian government uh, 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 harassment fee for uh, for operating and delivering you know free information. Medusa Project, another Russian but Latvian-based uh, outlet, is agreeing to be branded as as Russian as a foreign agent under the Russian law, uh, but that may Im, Im, you know impact their advertising revenues. Interestingly, Hungary has had to withdraw from this law after the European Court of Justice uh, decision that this law was uh, in contradiction to the EU uh, Lisbon Treaty and um, Poland uh, has had Ordo Juris, um, Polish government especially, in as a, as a Richelieu uh, as a, uh, influencer of the Polish policy on on justice system on abortion laws and now looking at at uh, their activity on the civil society well frankly i'm um i'm pretty sure they will go somewhere and we'll continue reporting on that that was brought to the the report the first report on our side has been brought by by marisha chupkauer junior fellow What's the potential for enhanced cooperation between the Nordics and the V4? Uh, we have some uh, interesting recent uh, reporting by Wojciech Przybylski, Edin Zgut and Kamil Jaronczyk, part of a project called Connecting V4 and Other Regional Expert Networks. Check our website, visegradinsight.eu or link to this episode. We turn now to Radu Albukomanescu, Visegrad Insight Fellow and author of an essay that we publish in Visegrad Insight this week. Rado, you begin your article with a scenic reference to Leonardo da Vinci and Florence. What does this uh, parable of, of some sorts um, have in common with Central Europe of the last decades? Well, the metaphor is the heart of parables, and before writing the article, the image I had in mind with regard to the unfinished work of the civil society in Central and Eastern Europe was somehow compatible with unfinished but very promising works of art. And Da Vinci's Anginari fresco is among the most reputed cases of uncompleted creations. The image acquired by, by the civil society in our part of Europe in the early 1990s was at its peak, just like da Vinci's reputation after the Last Supper. Through its voices and ideas, dedication and expressions, you know, with the past dissidents, the civil society from here was the most esteemed by the Western world. This reputation led to expectations in terms of performance, of continuity, power and influence. And yet, Despite good image and skilled intellect, the impact of the civil society on the political and cultural processes in our countries was less fruitful than initially supposed. The comparison with Da Vinci was at hand because the fresco he envisaged before starting to work on it 
failed to materialize and instead of being um, instead of beginning again making use of classic methods for durable results he improvised lost motivation and ultimately abandoned you retrace the current predicament of uh, central europe and perhaps the disappointment when it comes to european integration and the role it plays back to the post 1989 uh, transition transformation what uh, do you see as as potential problems part of that uh, transformation and the years following that that actually explain the situation today civil society excelled in being able to act as a critic of the system that was replacing communism after 1989 and it still is but what it lacks is a deeper understanding of actual governance of institutional mechanisms and of power dynamics which are inevitable in democracies Now this is understandable before the fall of communism when power was not shared but it becomes less understandable today. The focus was for a long while on intellectual outlooks pertaining to what they identified as being needed in their respective societies mainly the regeneration of the nation. But by now it becomes clear that one needs to upgrade the comprehension of what a functional democracy means. Uh, what liberal values generally signify transforming civil society in a vector of active change while your article mostly deals with the question of european integration of course it also looks beyond the atlantic and considers the role of of the biden presidency the idea of an alliance for democracies so how important is this uh, transatlantic angle for your story about european integration and why do those two so that means transatlantic partnership and european integration come together so much for central and eastern europe it is for the first time since the 1990s that values other than trade are brought back to light and invoked by the usa and europe who once shared a common destiny when having to face the soviet regime This is a renewed demonstration that economic and political strategies of development cannot be disconnected from the ideas, doctrines, values and culture that shaped our own world and continue to act on it. They are visibly different, if not radically opposed, from the Atlantic to Russia and to China. What the alliance of democracies can achieve, I'd say, is restate the quintessential unity of the two sides of the atlantic deriving from values related to a certain idea of human dignity of worthiness and of excellence central and eastern europe is confronted now with a choice either to be a reliable partner in a community of enriching values the euro atlantic one or a no man's land disputed by powers like russia and china easy to blackmail economically and intimidate politically In this case the entire effort to rebuild our nations and self-respect after 1989 would be downgraded to zero with us reduced to satellites of very patronizing despots and I ask is this what we want to turn our countries into a very timely question indeed Thank you, uh, thank you Radu Albukamanescu, Quincy Klutz, uh, Wojciech Przybylski, thank you all for listening. If you're interested in this story, in, in this particular essay, uh, you will find the link in the description of this podcast. Uh, you can also go to the main page, visegradinsight.eu, 
subscribe, subscribe now to the podcast, subscribe to our services online. And, uh, for those who subscribe uh, to Visegrad Insight on our page, there will be special invitations waiting for our next subscribers only events with uh, former politicians, uh, diplomats, experts on, on the past, present and the future of, of Central European cooperation. Thank you. That's all for now.